0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade and colleague, Derek Davison. And we are excited to be joined once again by Samuel Hunicky, who's an assistant professor of history at George Mason University. And now we're actually going to discuss this time, instead of just going through a deep dive into um, into queer theory, we're going to talk about his book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. So Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Oh yes, we'll have you back many times. (laughs) I hope hope you get used to it. Um, So why don't we just start at the beginning, which is homosexuality in Germany in the 19th century, um, wherever you think it makes sense to start, because obviously people who might not know, Germany was not a unified state until the 1870s, mm-hmm. uh, and it really became a Prussian state, at least at the beginning, Prussia became sort of the primus inter Paris amongst the various German kingdoms. So, so Sam, wherever you think we should start to really make sense
1: of this. Yeah, that's, I mean, wow, what a, <laughs> what an open-ended question. Uh, so, There's sort of two stories here, right? There's the story of German unification, which you just alluded to, and then there's the story of modern concepts of sexuality uh, sort of bubbling up and arising in this period. And the two are, are obviously interconnected and interlinked. In some ways, I mean, there's various sort of starting points you could choose. We talked um, on the last on the last podcast about uh, the sort of Foucauldian model of sexuality of modern sexualities arising, and really Germany or the the. Lands that eventually coalesce into Germany is the location for a lot of these developments for where sexologists, sexual scientists start to theorize sex as something that isn't just an act, but rather says something about the individual. And so, you know, there are a number of these people, there's a guy named Husley who writes about sort of uh, Greek Eros in the early 19th century, and then a bit later on, around the time that Germany is re- uh, unifying for the first time, which sort of takes place through a succession of wars. You almost with- said reunified. Holy, I know, I almost <laughs> said that's, th- that's the 20th century yeah. historian in me, it, but unified, not reunified, and um, Unified uh, in 1871, but it's a series of wars, first with Denmark, then with Austria, and then finally with France, that allows Prussia, under the leadership of Otto von Bismarck, to unify Germany, under Prussian leadership, as you said, into a unified state. And in the 1860s, as a lot of this is going on, you have a man named... Carl Heinrich Ulrichs who is a lawyer from the kingdom of Hanover which eventually gets sort of swallowed up and subsumed into Prussia as a result of these wars and he basically starts to write about homosexuality and it's not yet called homosexuality he uh, gives gay men the name of Orning U R N I N G and this basically He starts to theorize that men who have sex with men and women who have sex with women are not simply um, engaging in sodomy or they're not just engaging in sort of aberrant acts, but rather that this is something constitutive of their being, that, that this is an identity. And moreover, that Germany... Is the the state Prussia first, and then reunified? Or am I, I did it again? Unified <laughs> Germany is persecuting them, uh, and so he writes about this. He goes and gives talks. He's sort of booed in public, and again, he's he's in some ways almost the the godfather of gay rights or of, of gay liberation. Um, you have other individuals um, such as the Hungarian writer uh, Karl Maria Benkert, who coins the term homosexuality homosexuality or homosexualität in this period. Uh, you have figures like Richard von Kraft Ebing, who is a major uh, sexologist who really starts to talk in a, you know, what he considered a scientific way about sexuality. Um, and his work you know, did a lot to link it to psychiatric illness and sort of various, right? I mean, it's, 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 this. it's, that's what I was, so how does this, how does the identification of this category
0: relate to the broader medicalization of terminology, relate to the rise of science, quote unquote, po- science, right. and also related to positivism in the 19th century? Because it seems like it's all coming together in this, oh, yeah. in this thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's all very much interconnected, right? So, the 19th century is this era of, of positivism, of sort of faith in the ability of science to describe and categorize and also improve, right? There's this very deep faith in progress in this era, at least as pertains to sort of, um, you know, white people living in Europe. So very much, you know, people like Kraft Abing, when they are looking at these, they are trying, it's, it's almost taxonomical, right? They're sort of trying to create these lists of sexual deviance or sexual aberrants and try to identify their source or what they're correlated with in an effort to be able to, you know, in the future, get rid of them, right? They, they see most of these things as problems that need to be overcome. Uh, and so, it, it's definitely connected to, you know, also same with this is the era of social Darwinism, right? This is when, um, the notion that, that humans can sort of be ranked into, uh, sort of better and worse and that the, the, you know, those who are sort of genetically better will rise to the top and so on, Um, that is also very much linked in with these efforts to classify and categorize sexualities. Um, But that said, there is this sort of liberational or liberatory aspect to it, right? It's not just uh, in the service of sort of oppressing sexual minorities. It's also language that is used by people like Ulrichs and Benkert, who also is known by the name Kurt Benny, Um, and then later on, people like Magnus Hirschfeld, Uh, They use this language to basically make a case that's very familiar to us today that sexual minorities are a coherent, cohesive minority and that they're being oppressed and that this is essentially an unjust use of state power.
0: So just quickly, Sam, right now we're we're focusing much more on what might be called the expert coalition that is coming to emerge to define themselves with sexuality. What's going on on the ground do we have a sense, are there sources even for mm-hmm. homosexual encounters, and how, how is that functioning? If you're an 18, <laughs> if you're a Prussian farmer in 1845, or, or what have you, or whatever you want to take, like, how does this actually look on the ground? Because I'd like to get, if possible, both sides of the... History from below, have you heard of yes. it? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's... Um- a Prussian farmer. Not totally sure what life looks like if you're a gay Prussian farmer at the time. However, we do know. Catacombia. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. Um, You know, sort of. Again, this this sounds very familiar to us today. Um, we know that there were sort of queer subcultures in cities in this era, right? And so again. We know that in the 20th century, um, queer people, at least people who sort of positively self-identify as gay or lesbian or trans or, you know, any other sort of category, oftentimes will voluntarily make the move to an urban setting um, out of a belief that, that they will be able to find other people like them there. I mean, this is still something that exists in our time. Uh, and... Um, and that's how you get these sort of you know gay neighborhoods or gay villages in, in various major cities. So we know that that exists in especially in Berlin. Um, uh, Robert Beachy wrote a really great book, uh, "Gay Berlin," which covers a lot of this. Um, and one of his really striking findings is that basically this um, gay subculture—if you can—I I don't know that you, we should be using the word "gay." I mean, we can use "gay." for sort of convenience's sake.
0: And could you maybe just do a quick tangent on why you wouldn't use that word just so people would understand the historian approach?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the term gay only becomes a sort of normative or commonly accepted way to refer to men who have sex with other men in the last several decades, I mean, since World War II. Um, the German schwul is somewhat older, um, but at the time, it's very much contested. It's not really something, you know, the, the sort of elite individuals who are campaigning for a reform to the law, they're talking about homosexuality, homosexuals, um, you know, they refer to as you know to their movement as as a campaign for homosexual rights um and then there are all these other terms like warning that are floating around uh you also have i mean one good example is that you have a lot of cross-dressing in this period you have a lot of people who are you know identified as male at birth and who frequently wear women's clothes out whether to parties or just wherever and those people oftentimes go by the term transvestite, which obviously today has very negative connotations. And so we would, you know, if you read the historical literature, you'll see this term used in this very carefully contextualized way, um, but we wouldn't want to just sort of throw it out or use it colloquially today. Uh, so I basically, you know, these terms shift over time, but I think for sort of ease of speaking about it, especially in a context like this, it's, it's fine to use the term gay because it is sort of an umbrella term that you're, you know, recognizing encompasses all these men and women who are engaging in sort of queer sexual and social practices.
0: You talked about trans. I just have a question. Was there any development of a type of third gender or what are, oh, yeah. what what is sort of the the social view of people who who we would today identify as trans?
1: Yeah, so I mean that's that's a great question. So basically we today have this very neat compartmentalization of sort of gay people are over here and trans people are over here and they're obviously sort of allied together politically. Um, But there's, you know, I think there's almost a a present day assumption and certainly among sort of gay and lesbian conservatives who want to distance themselves from trans people, there's an effort to say, well, actually there's nothing uh, that connects us. And if you look historically, that's simply not true. If you look historically that this sort of neat categorization doesn't really start to come into being, until sometime in the post-war era, I mean it's it's fairly recent. So certainly if you look at the late 19th, early 20th century in Germany where a lot of this activism and this theorizing is, is occurring, many of the ways that people are talking and thinking about queerness, do I mean they? They literally use the term third sex or third gender, right? Um, Magnus Hirschfeld, who's this pioneering sexologist and advocate, he uses the term Geschlecht, or so third sex, basically, and to him that encompasses both men who have sex with men, but who do not exhibit any sort of what we would today think of as maybe gender deviance or gender non-normativity, as well as these quote-unquote transvestites, these people who very intentionally go out in the dress of the gender that is not the one that they were assigned at birth. And so these theories encompass all of this, some of the theories at the time of people who we would see as homosexuals, as gay. The notion is that for a gay man, They are essentially a, you know, quote-unquote, woman's soul trapped in a man's body, which is what we would think of today as a trans person, right? And so all of these categories, I I don't want to say that they're muddled because all of these categories are constructed, right? But they are, from our sort of normative perspective today, muddled. They seem muddled. They seem to confuse categories. On the other hand, I think a lot of historians of sexuality and gender would look back and say, well, actually, they recognize that all of these categories are sort of fluid and flow into each other, and that you actually can't create these neat compartmentalizations.
0: So, you were talking about uh, homosexual rights. So, what is the legal status? What, what are, what are, Maybe you could talk a little bit about rights, and I imagine this right. is related to liberalism and the development of liberalism in Germany in the in the nineteenth century or proto
1: Germany. So, what's what's so interesting is that you have A long evolution here from very early legal codes in Prussia and in the German lands prescribed um, the death penalty for sodomy. Um, And we do know of cases where that was carried out. Um, This wasn't an idle threat. With the sort of, you know, and this is sort of a a (laughs) very quick gloss, but with the advent of the Enlightenment, and the French Revolution, um, you have new sort of what we would think of as liberal ways of thinking about the law that come into being. Um, And one of those, and and these, you know, um, evolutions are deeply hostile to religion, right? The French uh, Enlightenment in particular was quite hostile to um, sort of established religion, to the Church. And so when Napoleon introduces the um, Napoleonic Code, the Code Civil, Uh, in the early 19th century, it does away with the prohibition on sodomy. Uh, And so that's sort of one of the first instances where this historic... Crime has been done away with. Now, in the German lands, you have. What's the justification for that? Do you know, like, why? I'm honestly not deal. totally sure. I'm i I sort of have rattling around in my head that it wasn't really something that was even discussed. It was just sort of seen as okay. We don't need to include this. Um, but uh, that might be wrong. Uh, so listeners should, um, <laughs> you know, in that horrible phrase that we now use, should do their own research. But in Germany, you have. Um, similar sort of enlightenment efforts to update the penal code. You have a major effort to create a new sort of civil code and criminal code under Frederick the Great. And eventually what comes out is the Prussian paragraph 143 of the penal code. And this Uh, just what year do you mind just situating us? So, um, we're talking about the mid uh, 19th century, the sort of 1850s. And this is also around the time that Prussia is granted a constitution for the first time. So, that's another sort of major impetus or effort on the part of this sort of classical liberalism. And in Germany, it's liberalism is very tied um, to both the effort to write down laws, to create a constitution, to sort of bind um, the hands of the absolute monarchy, to have a legislature, so on and so forth. But it's also very much tied to uh, nationalism and so the, the desire for a nation state. And so you get essentially what are called national liberals. And that's that's a whole other tangent. But But that's sort of what's going on broadly at this time. You get a Prussian uh, criminal code at this point, and one of the individual paragraphs of that criminal code is paragraph one four three, which is the law that criminalizes essentially penetrative sex between men um, and that's you know that's fairly standard for this period, but it also limits its applicability, right so things that we would think of as constitutive of homosexuality, such as a man living with another man, two men holding hands. Again, I'm in a sort of Western... And oral uh, sex? Is oral sex allowed? Oral sex does count. So oral and anal sex are both considered penetrative. Got it. um, And so they are criminalized. But all these other sort of activities that we would lump This might be... um, Is interfemural sex allowed? Inter what? Interfemural, like the the Greek thigh sex? Oh, um, no, that, that wouldn't have been criminalized. So that would be allowed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so you oftentimes men who are arrested under this under this provision, um, you will see that they will claim, "Oh, well, we only um, engaged in mutual masturbation," and because they know that that isn't criminal, and it's then very hard for a prosecutor to actually prove that this took place. So when Germany is unified in 1871, the new legislature adopts a new criminal code to basically apply to the new German Reich, and. It adopts this paragraph one four three verbatim as paragraph one seventy five or one seventy five. Um, this paragraph is in one form or another on the books in Germany until nineteen ninety four, um, and really the history of homosexuality is very in Germany is deeply tied to this law. So again, in the late nineteenth century, it only criminalizes penetrative sex, and it's not, you know, it's not widely applied. Germany is a big country. You have fewer than a thousand convictions per year um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But it's very much held up as evidence by people like Magnus Hirschfeld that queer people, that the gay men in particular, are being discriminated against. Uh, and so you have, for instance, um, Hirschfeld in the late 19th century organizes a petition of notables that is addressed to the parliament asking it to essentially abolish this law or reform this law to decriminalize um, adult homosexuality. Um, and, and famous people, um, such as Einstein, Thomas Mann, uh, and so forth, sign on to this petition. So it's, it's, it's a big deal. It's sort of in people's um, sense of what's going on. August Bebel, who is the famous leader of the Social Democratic Party in Parliament, uh, he actually gives a speech on this topic, basically asking for decriminalization Um, and so what is the logic of decriminalization why are they saying that this is bad is it a moral position is it something else it's a very or it tends to be a very narrow position again rooted in a sort of enlightenment liberal idea of what the state should be doing so basically this notion is that again these you know homosexuality or, or whatever term it is that the individual is choosing to use at that period uh, is a naturally occurring phenomenon it doesn't harm anyone and therefore the state has no business um, sort of uh, criminalizing it um, so basically it's this notion of, of victimless crimes shouldn't be crimes uh, and um, this is sort of interfering in a natural part of a person's Development. So it's not making a positive case that homosexuality is good or even acceptable, um, but rather that it's something that isn't harmful. And, and uh, well, it's also saying that it's biologically determined. So that interesting people are so, born. Yeah. So could you talk about that? Yeah. Again? No, I mean, so that's, that's a really good point. Um, there's a lot of discussion and. Um, I, again, I hesitate to use the word confusion, but but it's, it's a very muddled question what exactly this thing is, right? So there is a growing consensus that homosexuality or sexuality writ large is this constitutive part of someone's identity, but there's not yet a sense of, okay, is it genetic? Is it biological? Um, is it, you know, is it nature versus nurture? Um, and you have a lot of people at the time who think that, in fact, it has much more to do with someone's upbringing uh, and sort of social um, existence as, as a child and as a teenager. So there's this very common, uh, commonly re- repeated notion that most homosexuals are, quote-unquote, seduced into homosexuality at a young age, so that these older gay men—and this is very common or very similar to uh, the sort of grooming rhetoric that we're seeing right now from conservatives in places like Florida, and was very popular in the early 1950s during the Lavender Scare.
0: Mm-hmm, you know, the the mm-hmm. famous propaganda films of, of yes. older men seducing younger boys. This is a trope. It, is this trope go back further into history, or is this really a rise in the 19th century? <sighs> is it linked to like ideas of what was the Spartan? Oh God, you know the the the, the band of Thebes. Uh, I forget the the name, but you know there was uh, that old thing.
1: Yeah, you know that's a, I don't know about that. I you know the, what I would or what I oftentimes it's a trope
0: you see in like yeah the, the literature. Yeah, yeah. No, well, so, the, so I mean, the sacred band of Thebes, sacred
1: band of Thebes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's interesting about that, right, is that we know that sort of pederasty was a part of um, you know forms of sexuality in, in ancient Greece, and this is something you know ancient Greece is something that both people who are pro homosexual rights and, and against homosexual rights in this period look back to um, and the the sort of people like Hirschfeld and, and others like him will look back and say you know they allowed men to have sex with men and it was fine so like what's wrong with us today? Conversely, the sort of conservatives or people who didn't want to reform paragraph 175 would look back and say, well, they were all sort of decadent pederasts, and so why on earth would we want to go back to that? But I was going to say, I think the other thing that it really connects to or links up with is anti-Semitism, um, right? That, that there's all sorts of, you know, blood libel. There's all these myths around Jews sort of kidnapping young Christian boys and sacrificing them and so on. And so I think there's actually a lot of connective tissue between homophobia and, and anti-Semitism, and this is something um, uh, that you know goes back to the Middle Ages in and, and various forms. So, seduction of youth is this very common trope in in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries in Germany, and obviously, like, goes on through to today. This this myth. Um, so, you have this law, paragraph one seventy five. It's sort of the the issue that that these opponents or these these um, The opponents of it use it as a sort of way of coalescing um, together for homosexual rights. Um, And this effort continues up through the Nazi seizure of power in 1933. Probably the closest that they get to success is a parliamentary committee in 1929, votes in favor of a reform of the law that would legalize consensual adult sexual acts between men, but also then criminalize certain new qualified cases of homosexuality, including male prostitution and again the so-called seduction of youth younger than 21. So essentially setting a higher age of consent um, and reiterating or, or writing into the law this notion that queer people exist because they are seduced into that sexuality at a young age. Hey, everyone. It's Jake. Just a couple of quick plugs. First, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. You can go sign up for the free list and also sign up for our free two-week trial for our bonus content, where you can go through the archive, check out our series, take part in discussion threads, and lots of more cool stuff. I also want to plug another podcast, Ones and Twos, with one Adam Twos. He's a foreign policy columnist, history professor, and popular author. He's got this encyclopedic knowledge about stuff from COVID, climate change, to Weird Food Recipes, so you can join him along with foreign policy editor
0: Cameron Abadi as they unpack two numbers each week, one from the headlines and the other from way off the news. So search Ones and Twos, T-O-O-Z-E, on Apple, Spotify,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Sam, I wonder um, if there's enough information, and there may not be. I mean, it's it's kind of obscure, I guess, but, um, you know, we talk, you talked about... German unification, and there's, of course, the formal unification in 1871, the adoption of the uh, Prussian legal code in this area, but is there any, can we talk about any kind of, like, geographic, I mean, the, you know, the process of unification obviously goes beyond just the, the formal thing, can we talk about geographic differences in the way that these issues were dealt with, or, you know, different states that eventually came to be part of Germany, um you know any any can we get to that level of detail or is that too granular for what's available that's a really good question um most of what i'm familiar with at least in this era is about berlin um and i think that's in i think there are sort of two reasons for that um one, or maybe three one is that there are a lot of sort of intellectuals and advocates who live in and around Berlin. And so there is this sort of very rich subculture that you can look at and, and write about. Um, Berlin's also a weird place because you have a police chief for many years in the late 19th, early 20th century, who is essentially quite permissive of this subculture. And he tends to see blackmail as a much bigger threat than sodomy. Uh, and so um, there's this very common trope of, you know, like rent boys uh, essentially entrapping um, men by having sex with them and then blackmailing them and saying, I'm going to go to the police and, you know, say that you seduced me or whatever. Which is you another know. trope that we, we oh, find yes. oh, yes. out. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. These things are so constant.
1: They they are um, depressingly constant. Yeah, depressingly constant. <laughs> And so, basically, this police chief sees, and this is all in Robert Beachy's um, Gay Berlin, which which I definitely recommend, um, he basically allows this subculture to exist sort of under police surveillance and, again, as a way to sort of try and stop blackmail from happening. And so Berlin is this sort of unique place for all of these reasons. You know, that's, I think, a big part of why Berlin gets its, the reputation it does in the 1920s as a especially welcoming place to queer people, which obviously, you know, Christopher Isherwood writes about. It's still sort of in Cabaret, Babylon, Berlin, um, all these sort of m- more recent cultural productions sort of have canonized Berlin of the 1920s as a queer place. And so... In terms of what's going on in other parts of Germany, it's certainly going to be different. I don't believe there's a ton out there on, you know, certainly other cities like Hamburg or Cologne um, evolve their own queer subcultures. But again, to sort of go back to the Prussian farmer, I... Honestly, I'm not totally sure. And it would have depended a lot on the locality, on what the individual sort of police officers and prosecutors thought of the issue, whether or not they thought it was something worth expending resources on. Certainly in terms of the broader story of German uh, unification, it is a sort of slow and incomplete process. A lot of the southern German states, which only join with Prussia um, in the German Empire as a result of the um, Franco-Prussian War of 1870— Uh, They retain a huge amount of autonomy. Uh, So, the Bavarians, you know, still have a king, they still have a technically independent military, they still exchange ambassadors with other countries, Um, and really the work of German unification is in some ways, you know, only completed or only starts to get completed with the outbreak of World War One. That the, it's this massive unifying moment, the so-called spirit of 1914, where Germans, um, there's this brief sense that all Germans are unifying in this sort of struggle against a common enemy. And that, of course, quickly breaks down. And then there's sort of an argument that the Nazis are very effectively able to mobilize memories of that sentiment and sort of make the claim that they are the ones really completing the work of, of German unification. Before we go that far, we have yeah. to talk about one
0: man, three syllables, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> um, so how is Freud, what is Freud's work doing? I mean, obviously he's not in Germany proper, um, but he he's in Österreich. Uh, and so he is also, of course, German language.
1: So how does his his writing fit into any of this? Yeah, I mean, Freud is sort of, you know, obviously writes about sexuality, um, and he's sort of someone who's in conversation with all of these other sexologists. He much more fits into, um, you know, he is not someone who thinks that sexuality is, is determined at birth or that it's sort of genetically or biologically determined. He, you know, espouses the view that all people are innately bisexual to a certain extent and that um, homosexuality is essentially a, a failure of development, right, of psychological development in youth. At the same time, other people have looked at Freud's writings and said, well, you know, he does advocate for sort of compassion and understanding, right? So a lot of these sexologists see, and psychologists see homosexuality or other, you know, quote-unquote sexual deviances as problems for society and for the individual that that represent, um, whether it's seduction or an inability to sort of mature psychologically, but they also advocate a certain degree of tolerance for the individual, right? They see these as broader problems that need to be addressed or corrected, but they don't really advocate for these sort of harsh criminal penalties. So they occupy a very ambivalent place, but, but certainly someone like Hirschfeld doesn't really see Freud as... An ally, I would say, in this effort to overturn Paragraph One Seventy Five.
0: So, I've got a question about the Jews. So, psychoanalysis <laughs> was often derided as a Jewish science, um, even though uh, it, it, uh, many of its early practitioners were Jewish or had Jewish origins. Um, was that true for the anti-Paragraph One Seventy Five coalition, or, or is this a coalition that that uh, is across, you know, um, what was identified as racial groups right. at the time?
1: Um, so yes and no. Uh, so I keep talking about Hirschfeld because he's a very <laughs> convenient stand-in. He's, he's Jewish, someone, right? I, and I, he's Jewish. Yes. Um, and so what's interesting is, as I have sort of alluded to, there's a real debate at this time about what homosexuality is and also what political emancipation or, or legal emancipation for queer people should look like. Um, in addition to the sort of camp of people who buy into the notion that this is a scientifically categorizable phenomenon. You also have another group of very conservative writers known as the Masculinists, and they are oftentimes associated with a magazine called De Eigena, which does not translate very well into English, but sort of the one or the the self or, I mean, it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't really have a good translation, but De Eigena, it's actually the first sort of homoerotic publication in Western history, um, periodical. It starts in 1896 in Prussia, and um, it's published by a man named Adolf Brandt. And, Brandt and the writers who are represented in De Aigene, they have a very different conception of sex and love between men. Instead of seeing it as a perversion or deviance or something that constitutes a sort of minority, a social or, or sexual minority, they see these sorts of bonds as something that are, to some extent, available to all men. And they also see it in this sort of universalizing light as something that undergirds modern society. Um, And so you have a lot of theoretical work that comes out of um, these sort of people. You have a man named Hans Bluer, who writes about the role of homoeroticism and Germany's youth movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so basically they see these homoerotic bonds as a sort of ennobling form of relationship that gives, that sort of, again, undergirds society and the state. And so, what they argue is that this sort of medicalization of homosexuality is denigrating or cheapening what they see as this very sort of ennobling experience. They oftentimes refer back to the Greeks, uh, sort of, you know, mythologized Greek past to defend this position. They're also Deeply misogynistic. Many of them oppose women's suffrage. Uh, They do not see a place for women in modern society. And they are also. Very racist and anti-Semitic, and so they will oftentimes so they prefigure like Ernst Röhm and people like that. Oh yes, very. I mean, well, they are contemporaries with. I mean, they these people very much so. Röhm was um, probably
0: a, sus- a subscriber. <laughs> yes,
1: no. I mean, this is exactly Ernst Röhm, the the Nazi stormtrooper leader who is gay, and um, although he would not have used the word gay to describe himself, but but is a man who who has romantic and sexual attachments to other men. Um he very much buys into this masculinist notion of what homosexuality is. And
0: so, so Sam, just let me, I want to situate myself here. When, yep. when are we talking, what period are we talking with this masculinist notion? It seems like we're talking about several decades, like 1900s to yes. 1933 ish.
1: Yes, that's exactly sort of like 1890s through early 1930s. Um, Got so it. it's a long span of time. This magazine publishes, um, more or less continuously throughout that period. Um, you also have individuals um, like the poet Stefan Georga, who is sort of forgotten today. And how you know. dare you? You don't love the, the Georga Christ? So this was a guy who was at Heidelberg, right? Yes, yes in, in he part was at yeah.
0: Heidelberg. Yeah, so he he was sort of a charismatic figure. There was a there was a fun a fun trend in uh, 1910s <laughs> and 1920s German academia where these um, intellectuals Weber, among them, there was the Weber Christ, and they sort of mm-hmm. fought with a uh, fought with a Georga Christ at Heidelberg, where these charismatic professors would sort of gather young men and even to some mm-hmm. women sometimes, you know, Marion Faber had, had, you know, a little circle of her own uh, around themselves. So sorry, but just to give Oh yeah, a little no, uh,
1: that's yeah. exactly it. And, and with Georga, you know, he is this, he's a poet. Um, he writes incredibly dense, esoteric verse. I took a couple of courses when I studied, I studied for a year at the University of Heidelberg as a college student. Oh, and, nice.
0: I, I love Heidelberg. That's oh, where like basically everyone I studied went. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, and I took several seminars on Georg's poetry there and with, you know, students and it was in German and so on. Um, and his poetry is dense enough that, uh, you know, we would, our, our, the professor leading the seminar, we would start with, a poem that we'd all read, and the professor would sort of ask a generic question like, what's, what's going on in this poem? Silence. He would say, okay, what's going on in the first stanza? Silence. Say, what's going on in the first line? Silence. And then he would say, what is the grammatical subject? Of the first line, and that's wh- that's where we could start having a conversation because it's just really dense and obscure, and that's very much related. It's, it's elitist poetry; it's meant to only be understood by a small set of people.
0: Yeah, it prefigures like Leo Strauss, basically, sort of mm-hmm. this esoterica elite. Um, I th- yeah. was was Georg. There was also like an occult element, if I remember yes, correctly. There yeah. was there was he it had was a circle, like this occult
1: thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a circle in Munich around him that was very into the occult um this is also that he meets a i believe 16 year old boy um named maximilian kronberger in munich in early 20th century around there and maximilian dies of something like tuberculosis or something like that in you know like a year later and Georga publishes what is, I think, oftentimes seen as his best cycle of poetry called the Maximine Cycle, uh, in which he basically sort of elevates the memory of this dead boy into that of a sort of god, and his circle sort of worships this god. And it's published with um, pictures of this of this kid in sort of Grecian dress. And so it's very, again, very... very like, that's referencing like Patroclus and Achilles. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm, uh, exactly. And who's
0: the emperor who... Hadrian
1: yep. and... Um, yep. The boy turned into a yes, god. Uh, exactly, you, uh, that's exactly yeah, yeah. what it's referencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, very homoerotic, very elitist, misogynistic. Sort of. He's also very much lumped in with the masculinist writers. Um, he, but he eventually, Georga, eventually gets quite a great deal of fame. There's this sort of notion that um, one of his books, uh, the, so, the German soldiers carried into battle in World War One. Uh, and then um, the Stauffenberg brothers are members of the of the circle and Klaus. Von and the Stauffenberg
0: brothers are the ones who are behind the July twentieth, nineteen forty four plot right. against Hitler. Yes. So right. So there's
1: there's all these sort of interconnected. gallery but with <laughs> yes.
0: starring uh, friend of the pod, Tom Cruise. <laughs> so you just mentioned that um, people would carry uh, georgia's poems onto on, on the western front as, as the proverbial western front as it were um, so could we maybe talk a little bit about world war one because I'm just thinking it in the context of, uh, of an Americanist and I forget what historian said this it might have been written or said but he said something along the lines of you know you could explain a lot of the 1950s culture by the fact that a bunch of men lived together for four years had experiences with each other and then pretended that it never happened so War is also a very crucial moment, I think, in the mm-hmm. development of these sorts of processes. So, could you maybe talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I mean, I think it is. It's it's very important, and it's in terms of World War One's the,
0: important, folks. The, the, or, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um So you sorry. heard it here first. American prestige <laughs> delivering. <laughs> <laughs> all breaking <the> news. news. <laughs> breaking all of the, news. the deepest I. insights. Okay. Uh, so it, it's narrowly important to the story of sexuality, as you sort of said, because you have all these men who are fighting together and living together and definitely having sex with each other, uh, you know, for four years during the war. And it, it sort of disrupts all these social bonds. And that's, again, where these masculinists are quite compelling is they see that male camaraderie as this ennobling constitutive element of society. They don't see it as a problem. They see it as great. Actually,
0: Sam, before we continue, just one quick question. I know in certain cultures you're only considered gay, and again, this is not a, you know, we we had the disclaimer. If you're the one being penetrated, is mm -hmm. that sort of distinction available here or not really in the context of early 20th century Germany?
1: So you definitely have that distinction. I mean this is something that we talked about um George Chauncey's Gay New York last right. in the last episode. Um you know that that's those sort of distinctions definitely exist um in this period. You'll know, you'll definitely see um you know when um say rent boys or whatever are are caught and they're they're giving testimony um, they might say you know well I don't see myself as homosexual I you know I'm only ever the active participant or, or what have you that said though i think because the discourses of homosexuality at least in a place like Berlin are so prevalent at a very early period right this is where a lot of the theorizing of what sexuality is is happening. This is where you have all of these um, gay magazines and lesbian magazines in the in the 1920s, uh, where you have the world's first homosexual rights movement. And so, I think that that those logics and that language takes hold much earlier in Germany than probably almost anywhere else. As a result, so yes and no, but certainly in in the Great War, you have these bonds that are being formed, um, and that has a sort of. It's important, I think, to the evolution of homosexual activism in the Weimar Republic that comes after the war, but it also more broadly just loosens social bonds. It certainly loosens the bonds that Germans feel to the Kaiser, to the Emperor, right? There's this feeling of betrayal, especially after Germany loses the war. There is a sense that on the part of many of these individuals that they have found a sense of sense meaning in their lives through this fight. And that's I think a big part of why so many of them join uh what became or what become known as the, the Free Corps, the Freikorps, uh, after the war. These are essentially right wing sort of paramilitary units uh, that terrorize leftists. They're responsible for the murder um of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht during the Spartacus uprising. Um, they're used, you know, they they essentially form an alliance with the Social Democratic Party to put down the the communists. Um, and then not many, a good move social democratic party no, that was the no. wrong move <laughs> it certainly was um, and uh, these are the same people Uh, Who then join organizations like the the Steel Helmets, the Stahlhelm, which are this massive uh, sort of paramilitary veterans organization? Because
0: just the Versailles Treaty makes Germany only able to have a one hundred thousand man army, so you see a proliferation of a lot of these like pseudo army groups. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. Um, You know, such as the stormtroopers, the SA that the Nazi Party sets up. Right, and. Um, and so, so there's this, there's this, um, desire in the Weimar period to recapture this sort of homoerotic, homosocial brotherhood or sort of military bond. Um, I think that, that definitely plays a big role in, in destabilizing the Weimar Republic. And that's obviously not the only reason that they're joining it, but I think that, that plays a role. Certainly for someone like Anström, it does.
0: Could we talk um a little bit, and we'll we'll end here, and we'll focus the mm-hmm. next episode on Weimar and Nazi Germany, but could we talk here about World War One? And so you have someone like Ernst Jünger really glorifying war and sort of the masculinist, like you, one is only truly oneself in war. And was that related at all to sort of this conservative vision of, of homosexuality on one hand? And then I was just wondering if we could maybe close on how are the people who we would consider to be more, more liberatory, more on the left side of the spectrum, how do they respond to something like... World War One before, um, you know, the Weimar Republic is signed, I believe in August, 1919, the, the constitution is signed.
1: Yeah. So Ernst Junger is definitely sort of part of this. I mean, I would not necessarily consider him to be part of the masculinist tradition, but the, his writing is definitely playing into this broader sense of, um, as you said, sort of the glory of war and so on that the masculinists are also interested in and sort of writing about, um, so yeah, I think there's definitely uh, a connection there. In terms so, of, I guess, but, Sam, what I'm what I'm asking is there an idea like you're only truly
0: a full, vital person in war, and when you're a homosexual in war amongst the masculine tradition, is that the idea that is sort of like the highest level
1: uh, in a sense? I think certainly some of the masculinists would buy into that idea. Again, it's a sort of diverse group of thinkers, and so and you you have some of them who sort of enthusiastically embrace fascism and Nazism and, and all of these sort of more radically right ideas. You have others who are more in the sort of democratic mainstream and would probably shy away from from views like that. But certainly some of them have this view of you know sort of uh, m- you know the the family and men's relationship to women those are all sort of holding the man back and it's rather in these sort of all-male sort of martial settings that they they realize their, their full potential and that that also sort of having and honoring this sort of homoerotic bond is um, an important part of that, 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 that a man, that a, a society and a man can't sort of reach their full potential without that sort of homoerotic bond. Um, which isn't to say that the men... In question need to have sex with each other, right? I mean, the the masculinists are very, again, I, I keep using the word homoerotic because I think that's really, if you read the poetry and the short stories and so forth that are published in Igana, it is homoerotic. I mean, there there's clearly this sort of sexual energy, but it's not necessarily talking about specific sex acts, um, or it's a lot more sort of left up to the imagination.
0: And so at this point, let's say end of World War One, 1918 is how are the Hirschf- Hirschfelds of the world reacting to what's been going on? And we'll close on that.
1: Yeah, so again, there's a big overlap between sort of leftist parties and sort of progressive sexology and these sort of advocates, as I sort of mentioned, um, people like August Bebel, who was the longtime leader of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, and this is also, it's important to remember, I think, at this point, the Communist Party has not yet split away from the Social Democratic Party. This is in a phase sort of late 19th, to early 20th century. The German Social Democratic Party is the largest socialist party um, on earth, and it is a much more sort of radical institution, or, or it has sort of radical and more um, assimilationist wings, um, and that eventually leads to the split. So, But there's, there is this sense, I think, among... Um, And I'm not totally sure what exactly Hirschfeld thought about the war. And that is something I can come back to you with at the next podcast. Because people could be in favor. It's weird. Like some people you wouldn't
0: expect would support it. And some people who you think would be for it were against it. And I uh, just
1: off the top of my head, I'm not sure what I am. Sure that he eventually became skeptical of it, but I'm not sure. At yeah, the everyone becomes of the skeptical war. by 1916. Right, right. right 1914, exactly. 1915. Everyone's
0: into it, <laughs> and then, oh shit, it's <laughs> yeah,
1: it's real. Come um, us, man. Yeah, but certainly, you know, the the movement takes, you know, welcomes democracy, welcomes the Weimar Republic, and takes immense advantage of. Um, in particular, the fall of censorship. That's one of the biggest changes. Next to female suffrage, the new constitution bans most form of, forms of censorship. And that's incredibly important to these sort of periodicals and to uh, essentially public discourse around sexuality.
0: Well, great. We'll return to this for uh, in our next episode. Uh, Sam Heunicke, thank you so much. Everyone go out and buy States of Liberation. Gay men between dictatorship and democracy in Cold War Germany. And one day we will get to Cold War Germany in this (laughs) series. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you.